with me to Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations chapter 3. This morning I'm going to be reading from verses 17 through 24. This is what the author of Lamentations says. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I am grateful once again in this moment for your eternal, holy, precious, and true word. I'm thankful that when words fail me and fail us, that we can turn to your word to find what we need in this moment, to receive from you the truth of who you are and your true promises towards us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift of Jesus this morning. God, I stand before you and before my church family knowing my own unworthiness to stand and proclaim your word. And yet I don't stand in my worth, but Christ's. I don't stand in my righteousness, but his which covers me. And I don't preach God from the flesh, at least I pray not to, but from the power of your spirit within me. So what is of my flesh, let it fall away, but what is of your spirit, let it work in this moment to draw our hearts and our minds to the glory of Christ Jesus, to the truth once again of the gospel May you work to deepen our faith in him, our love for him, and our lives to be changed to make much of him. So may this moment focus all of us, myself included, on the glory of Jesus through the preaching of your word. We ask this in his mighty and holy and precious name. Amen. I am the man who has seen affliction. These are the opening words to the third chapter of the book of Lamentations. They're words that often resonate with many of us because live long enough and at some point you can recognize in your own life that you've probably experienced a moment of utter and complete devastation. 
the words arise out of one of the darkest moments in the history of the nation of Israel. These are words are uttered after the destruction of its capital city, Jerusalem. In 589 BC, the Babylonian Empire, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, laid a 30-month siege on the city of Jerusalem. And as they entered into that city and won that battle, they systematically worked to level and completely destroy the entire city and the temple that stood at the center of it, and then led the nation of Israel into exile. God had warned his people that this would happen if they continued in their rebellion against him time and time again, that if they didn't turn from their sin, and yet they had failed to heed those warnings and suffered greatly for it. The book of Lamentations is written as a lament in view of these events. And here in the third chapter, the author personalizes the devastation that he has experienced in the reality of what has taken place around him. He looks at his reality. He looks at his devastation. And what he sees behind all of it is a God who is sovereign. And because of that, he goes on the attack. For the first 17 verses of Lamentations, the author cries out and accuses God in vivid metaphors for the heightened sense of anguish and devastation that he has experienced. He pictures God as a shepherd who's brought his rod to bear on his sheep. He likens him to a jailer who's imprisoned the author in an inescapable prison under heavy chains and who ignores his cries for help. God is pictured as a predator devouring his prey, and then, almost in the same breath, a hunter who's hunting his target. All of this anguish of feeling beaten, jailed, hunted, leads the author to a place of deep grief and despair. He recounts that he's a mockery and ridiculed by all the people. Further, he's left in such a place of utter torment that he likens it to eating dirt and being humiliated in ashes. All of it creates a vivid picture of utter anguish and complete devastation. So much so that the author cries out in verse 17, my soul is bereft of shalom. Peace has left me. I have forgotten what happiness is. And he realizes that he has nothing left. My endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. It's here in these verses that we see the author reach what I call the ultimate moment of devastation. The reality of his circumstances for the author have brought him to a point where as he looks outward at his life, all he sees is ruin. And as he looks inward at his soul, he realizes that he has very little to draw from. So much that he in essence says, I'm not sure I can go on. I don't know where to go from here. Everything is laid low. How on earth do I move forward? What do I do now? Devastation is the point in our lives where we wonder how can we move forward. All of us face it. 
The reality is that due to the sin in our world and even the sin within our own hearts and lives, each of us reach moments of devastation. Some of us reach multiple moments of devastation for lots of different reasons. What's key to the moment of devastation is when you ask the question, what do I do now? And where do I go from here? For much of the last 10 weeks, I felt the reality of devastation. People would often ask us how we were doing. And I would give them a standard response or illustration. I said, I felt like a boxer who got knocked out. And I was trying to figure out how I was going to get back up and stay in the ring. I resonate with the words of the author in Lamentations 3, looking at God at multiple times and saying, how could you do this? Where are you? I don't think I have anything left. Wondering if I'd ever come back or what my life was going to look like. Feeling the sting of devastation. And the reality is, in feeling that, I know that I'm not alone. I'm not a betting man. But if I was, I would say it's probably a pretty safe wager that every single person in this room has experienced devastation, is in a moment of devastation, or will experience devastation. No one escapes that reality. And all of us are often left in places where we say, what do I do now? But thankfully, Lamentations 3 doesn't end in verse 18. It continues... And the author finds something in the midst of his devastation that completely changes everything. And it's something in the process of the last 10 weeks that I found and rediscovered for myself first. But then over time, as I saw it more deeply, I wanted everyone to see it. And that's what I want to share with you today. So look again with me at verse 21 as the author makes the turn. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Don't miss the turn. He was hopeless before, but now he calls something to mind that changes the way in which he perceives the reality and what he is experiencing that moves him towards hope. Not everything is fixed, but there's now a different end in sight. That's the reality of hope. This phrase that he uses, this I call to mind, it could also be literally translated, this I return to my heart. The mind in the Hebrew uh, picture or imagery was the center of our thoughts, our beliefs, our relationship with God and the world. It's often what we would call our heart. It's where our core beliefs lie about who God is, about who we are, about the world. And so the author in this moment is actually drawing something back to his heart, a core belief that he knows or believes about God. Remember, he's looked outward and seen ruin. He's looked inward and realized he doesn't have what it takes to go on. But now, in this moment, he turns upward. And it's there he finds something beneath all the devastation. What does he find? Verse 22. That the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, that his mercies never come 
to an end. That they are new every morning. That there is daily refreshment in them. And that great is his faithfulness. What he draws on in this moment is the character and nature of God. He's actually drawing on a deeper revelation, I'm sorry, an earlier revelation of God's character in another moment of devastation to help him realize where God is in this moment of devastation. You see, the words the author used here is drawn directly from Exodus chapter 34, one of the key revelations of the character of God. If you have a Bible, you can turn there because I want you to see it because it's important, I think, as we kind of build and help us understand what God gives us in our own moments of devastation. Let me set a little bit the context for you of Exodus 34. The story of Exodus is a story of God's redemption of his people out of slavery in Egypt to make and form the nation for himself. So the book begins with the nation, the people of Israel, God's people under slavery in Egypt, but God works through Moses and miraculously to redeem his people. He brings judgment on Egypt through the 10 plagues. He leads his people out of slavery. He brings them through the Red Sea, and then he brings them all the way to Mount Sinai in chapter 19, where God essentially tells them, I've brought you here so that I can be your God and you can be my people. You're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation for me, and I'm going to form a covenant with you. We're going to have a relationship And as God forms that covenant, he gives them very clear terms on what will be entailed in that covenant, what it means for them to live in that covenant relationship with God. We know them as the Ten Commandments. The first two are very clear. You shall have no other gods before me. I'm number one. The second, you shall make no idols, no images that liken to me and worship them. Pretty straightforward. And then God goes to give on other calls and commands to his people. And then he tells them how to build a house, a tabernacle, in which he will dwell among his people. And then he calls Moses up onto the mountain, their leader. And in the absence of Moses, the people get a little restless. And instead of leaning into trust of God, they turn back to their old ways. And they ask Aaron to melt all their gold and form an idol, a calf, that they begin to worship. Moses actually comes down the mountain from visiting God and finds the people literally breaking the first two commandments from the get-go. And God is furious that his people would turn in their sin from him so quickly. And he essentially comes to Moses in Exodus 33 and he says, listen, I'm still going to be faithful to take my people to the promised land that I said I would, but I'm not going with them because they're a stiff-necked people. They're sinful, rebellious, arrogant, prideful. So I'll send an angel to go with them, but I'm not personally going with them. And at the end of Exodus 33, Moses comes to God to intercede on behalf of the people and say, hey, if you're not going to go with us, don't send us. You need to come. And then Moses asks God to show him his glory, show him who he is. God says, I won't show you full, I'll show you my backside. But in Exodus 34, we have this moment and interaction between Moses and God in light of Moses' intercession and desire for God to show the people mercy and to go with them into the promised land. The question that hangs in the backdrop of Exodus 34 is, how is God ultimately going to respond to the blatant rebellion of his people? 
And this is what he says. Verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Now, when you see Lord in all caps in your Bible, that's the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's four letters, yod heh vah It's the covenant name of God. So he's revealing his covenant name and his covenant character. So listen what he says then in verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, twice his covenant name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So God comes and he reveals in verse 6, his character in response to the rebellion. Moses intercedes. What's God going to say? What's he going to reveal? And he says, this is who I am. This is the sort of God I am towards my people. I am a God who is gracious. I am a God who is merciful. I am slow to angry, oh, anger, or I'm long-suffering in bringing about my justice. And I overflow with steadfast love. Now, that's an interesting word. That's actually a really hard word to translate for us. That word that we see overflowing in steadfast love is the Hebrew word chesed. And the Hebrew word chesed is a little bit tricky to translate. Some translations translate it as steadfast love, others loving kindness. Some translate it as loyal love. It's a statement of God's covenantal, loyal, generosity, love, grace towards his people. He essentially says, I'm overflowing in a loyal love to these people. And then the last one is his amet, or his true faithfulness, his consistency with his character. So what we see is, in the initial rebellion of Israel, in the devastation they bring because of their sin, God reveals, this is my character. This is how I'm going to operate towards my people. Now, you go back to Lamentations, and now, several hundred years later, they're in another moment of devastation, where the author's wondering, where do I go from here? What do I draw upon? And what does he return to his heart? Oh, the character of God hasn't changed. The chesed, that's the word, the chesed of God never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. If that is who he was before, then that is who he will be now. And if God is consistent in his nature and character, consistent in his grace, consistent in his love, then despite the devastation around me, I have something beneath that, a foundation from which I can begin to rebuild and move forward, which changes his whole perspective and brings to his heart hope for what could be. You see, the reality is, and what I want you to understand and have seen so faithfully in God's word time and again is that God's gracious love, his chesed, gives us the ability to rebuild in the moments of devastation. That God's character, his overflowing nature in grace and mercy and faithfulness is true consistently across time and space, that it was true then and as true for us today. 
And that it is upon that that we can draw as we face our own moments of devastation. And this isn't a concept just found in a couple passages. In fact, I would argue this is a concept that we see consistently throughout Scripture as its major theme. That God is a God of grace and love who draws his people to himself and is faithful to them. In order to help you understand that, let me just show you quickly a couple things of how this foundational concept of who God is as a God of steadfast love and covenantal faithfulness and grace and mercy gets played out across the story of Scripture. So in order to help you kind of see that for a second, let me, let me just help us maybe help wrap our minds a little bit deeper around this concept of chesed, which is used dozens, if not hundreds of times throughout the Old Testament, but it gets translated in some ways into the New Testament that I think are really dynamic. So chesed, again, it's a hard word at times to, to wrap our minds around a little bit because we don't have a direct word to translate it. So here's some definitions that people have given over the years as they try to capture the essence of this word and its concept in the Bible. The Bible Project says that chesed is an act of promise-keeping loyalty that is motivated by deep personal care. One Hebrew commentary says that it's the divine love condescending to his creatures, more especially to sinners, in unmerited kindness. Michael Card, author and musician who wrote a whole book on Hesed, says that it's when a person from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. Old Testament professor Alec Moyer says that Hesed combines the warmth of God's fellowship with the security of God's faithfulness. Now, when you hear those definitions and you begin to wrap your mind a little bit more around chesed, what words in our language come to mind when you hear these definitions? Well, oftentimes those are words that are paired throughout the scripture with the idea of chesed. Words like mercy, love, steadfastness, faithfulness, loyalty. But I think as we look across, especially the New Testament, there's two words that the authors continue to draw time and time again to try to capture the essence of God's character of Hasid. It is grace and love. Grace and love. Let me just show you this for a moment. When one of Jesus' earliest disciples, the disciple John, was writing the prologue for his gospel about Jesus and setting up what it was that God was beginning to do and bring through Jesus, he actually draws on these ideas. In John 1, 14, he writes, And the word, drawing here from Exodus language, the word became flesh and dwelt, or tabernacled is the real word, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Those are John's transliteration of the Hebrew words chesed and emet. He goes on, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness, from the fullness of Jesus, we have all received Chesed upon chesed. For the law was given through Moses, but chesed and emet came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. 
What John's trying to say is the God of chesed, the God of compassionate, gracious, loyal love, who's shown that time and time again in the midst of the fallenness of his people, is now bringing the fullness of that expression in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is here to bring us the fullness of God's grace, the fullness of his love expressed towards us. That he is the pinnacle and the epitome, the ultimate expression. It is God's chesed most fully realized in Jesus. And the authors of the New Testament pick up on this. They recognize that it's in the work of Jesus that God acts graciously in loyal love towards his people. And they begin to pick up on this idea of grace and love as the foundation for what God does in working in our lives and even in the moments of devastation. So Paul will remind the Ephesian church, for it is by grace you have been saved. It's by God's gracious covenantal commitment and love. This isn't of you. It's his act towards you. It's out of his consistent character. In Acts 15, as the church wrestles on the integration of Gentiles into their community, Peter reminds them in verse 10, now therefore why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved, how? Through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. That no one's saved in different ways. Salvation only comes by the act of God's grace towards people. Paul would remind Timothy that it is out of God's grace that all salvation has come for all people. 2 Timothy 2. I'm sorry, Titus 2. Paul would remind Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.9. Who has saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Paul would remind the Roman church, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace. You see, when you look across the testimony of Scripture, you see a God of consistent character in light of the fallenness and rebellion of the human heart. He is steadfast in love. It doesn't cease his mercies don't come to an end. It is out of his grace that he has moved on behalf of his people. And so because of that, what we can know of God, out of his character, out of the consistent revelation of his chesed, his gracious love across his word, is that when we find ourselves, no matter where we find ourselves, but especially when we find ourselves in moments of devastation, God has something for us underneath the ruin. He's got a foundation that we can begin to rebuild upon and move forward from. So the question then is, how does God's gracious love actually then give us the ability to rebuild? How does that happen? Well, I want to quickly just show you three ways. I could show you a dozen ways, but I want to quickly just highlight three ways that I think God's gracious love provides what we need in the ability to rebuild in moments of devastation. First, God's gracious love provides the foundation for our salvation. 
I already highlighted this a little bit, but let me just lean in deeper for a moment, right? Paul highlights it in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. How are you brought into relationship with God? How are you rescued from the place of darkness into his kingdom? How are you brought into relationship with him? Is it by your work? Is it by what you do? Is it by your merit? Is it by what you achieve? Is it by your righteousness? Is it by how good you are? How perfect you follow the rules? No, no. You are brought into relationship with God, the holy living God, despite your sin, merely out of an act of his grace towards you. And if that's the case, then we don't have anything to rely on anyway from the get-go. God didn't rescue. He says to Israel, I didn't rescue you out of Egypt because you were better than other nations. In fact, you were worse than them. You were lowly and weak and stupid and backward and stiff-necked. And yet I redeemed you. So if I would do that for you, you can trust that I'm not going to give up on you even when you turn against me. Because my steadfast love doesn't stop. And my mercy doesn't run out. So the gracious character of God provides the foundation for our salvation. That's why Paul would write to the Romans. You've been justified by faith and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we've also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. Even we stand in our salvation in and under grace. Verse 15, the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Paul would say the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace superabounded. That's really the idea. It abounded all the more. That despite our sin, grace went beyond our sin. It went above our sin. It crushed it and brought it low in its effort to draw us into relationship with God. So when we recognize that what's at the heart of our salvation is an incredible act of God from which we are unworthy, merely a gift given, that's grace, unmerited favor or kindness that God shows toward us, that that is the heart of our salvation, the foundation of our salvation. Then, in the moments where life falls apart, we might look outward and see ruin. We might look inward and recognize, I don't know what I have. We might not know where we're at or where we're going, but when we look to God, we can know where he is. He is turned towards us with grace and mercy to lead us towards our future new creation. Because his steadfast love doesn't stop. His mercy doesn't run out. That even in our failure and devastation, God has turned towards us desiring to continue to draw us deeper into our relationship with him. You see, the word chesed and the word grace are deeply personal words of relationship. They're the sort of words that draw and remind us that what God is ultimately interested in is this loving relationship with his people. And because that's true, because he is a God of grace, even in our worst moments, he is looking to draw us back into that relationship. I think there's no greater picture of the chesed of God than Jesus's illustration of the prodigal son in Luke 15. 
Remember, it's in a context where Jesus is giving a commentary on that which is lost in light of the Pharisees who are critiquing him for spending time with the worst people in their society. And in Luke 15, Jesus tells the story of a son who essentially comes to his father, says, I wish you were dead, give me my inheritance now, leaves with the money, goes out, squanders it in crazy living, ruins his life, ends up as a servant, serving pigs, living in a pig pen, eating their food. You want to talk about devastation, right? Like it doesn't, it doesn't get lower than that. And he has this moment where he says, man, I've ruined my life, but you know what? Even the servants have it better than I do back in my father's house. So I can't go back as a son, but I'll go back and maybe he'll show me enough kindness. Maybe he'll be gracious enough to just let me be a servant for him. And he starts his journey back. And when you read the story, what you see is that as the son approaches the home, the father is already looking for him. And he sees his son in the distance, and he runs to him. And he doesn't welcome him as a servant. He welcomes him as a son. And he kisses him, and he gives him his ring, and he gives him his robe, and he covers him and welcomes back into the family. You see, friends, that's the picture of the sword of God that we have. The father didn't wake up that morning and go, oh, man, maybe I'll check the front porch. We'll see what happens as if he accidentally happened to notice. No, the picture in the imagery is of a consistent father, day after day, standing on the front porch, looking, waiting, hoping, drawing that his son might return. And right as he catches a glimpse, he's the first one to sprint to him. And he runs after him out of his grace to welcome him back in. You see, the reality is, that's God's bent towards you in Jesus. God is looking at you and saying, where are you at? Come, I'm ready, I'm here, I'm on the porch all the time looking. My face is towards you, not away from you. My love is for you, to bring you in, to welcome you into your true identity as my son and my daughter. He's a God whose grace is so magnificent, it overcomes our sin to draw us back into the relationship. That's why Tim Keller would write in his book, The Prodigal God, God's love and forgiveness can pardon and restore any and every kind of sin or wrongdoing. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. It doesn't matter if you've deliberately oppressed or even murdered people or how much you've abused yourself. The younger brother knew that in his father's house there was abundant food to spare, but he also discovered that there was grace to spare. There is no evil that the father's love cannot pardon and cover. There is no sin that is a match for his grace. And that's not only seen in the younger brother, it's also seen towards the self-righteous older brother who won't even come into the party for the younger brother. The father doesn't leave him outside. He goes out to him to invite him to come in as well. See, that's his character. He's a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and overflowing in chesed. Second, God's gracious love is the foundation for our discipleship, for our identity and transformation and sanctification. It's out of his gracious love, most fully expressed in Jesus, that draws us into the path of becoming more like him, learning to love and live like Jesus. God's extravagant grace doesn't lead us towards an abandonment of him. An understanding of his grace draws us into loving relationship with him 
that constantly motivates and empowers us to move to become more like him. That's why Paul would say in Romans 6, what then, are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. What Paul's saying is if when we understand grace, we understand it draws us to be people who aren't just like, I gotta follow the rules, I gotta do this. No, our hearts are changed transformed from the inside in love to say, wow, God would do this for me? He would cover my sin that way? How can I not express love back to him? Um, Let me help you maybe think of it this way. So my wife is a phenomenal gift giver. I am a terrible gift giver. Terrible. If you get a gift from me, you're like, did you think about this at all? And the truth is I probably didn't because I'm just not good at it, but she's great at it. When she gives gifts, they're personal. She sees people. She, she's able to give them, and so every Christmas, I get the awesome experience, because we give our kids three gifts, and I bet you can guess who picks out the presents for Christmas, and so Alicia always has this ability to get our kids exactly what they need or want or things that connect with their personalities, their likes, their interests, and what she does. And so every Christmas, our kids will open up these gifts, so personal, so amazing, so beautiful to who they are. And I'll always watch them respond with this overwhelming expression of love and gratitude back. Usually first to her, and then I get the byproducts, because they know who the gift giver is. So they're like, Mom! And they're like, thanks, Dad. We know you probably gave some money to this, right? But like, but you see it. An extravagant, loving, personal gift given results in a response of loving relationship back. It's a misunderstanding of grace to think that God shows us this incredible, extravagant gift in Jesus towards us and then thinks that the response is to just do whatever you want. No, he gives it out of relationship because he desires the relationship. And when we receive and understand the nature of what he's given, our natural turn back then is to come and say, God, I love you. You would do this for me. Man, can my life be for you. Man, can I make much of you. You're incredible and amazing. Of course, I want to obey from my heart because you're so gracious. I know that whatever you call me to is going to be for my good and my joy. And so understanding the gracious love of God overflows in our lives towards love back to him, which changes the way we live. This is why Jesus would look at those that understood the law better than anyone. The Pharisees who practiced, they added laws upon laws. And they hammered Jesus for eating with tax collectors and sinners. But he said to them, In Matthew 9, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That phrase, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, is actually a direct quote from the Old Testament prophet Hosea. And you know what word Hosea uses when he says, I desire mercy? I bet you can guess it. Chesed. I desire covenantal relational love and loyalty. I'm not in your, interested in your extravagant sacrifices. I'm interested in a relationship of love. 
And when we understand that, it transforms the way we live. Finally, last point. Sorry, I know. This is eight weeks of pent up. God's gracious love is the foundation for our relationship with one another. When we see his character, when we see his consistent character poured out on us in most fully expressed in Jesus Christ, and we receive his grace, his chesed, his love towards us in that, it not only changes our relationship with him and our relationship with ourselves, but it also transforms the relationship with one another that a people who receive gracious love become a community of gracious love. That what we receive from God, we show towards each other. We love because he first loved us. We show grace and forgiveness because he first showed that to us. And what you see is that Paul continually, as he helps encourage the churches, is constantly drawing them and encouraging the way they live back towards the reality of God's character and action in grace. So he'll say in Ephesians 4, 7, that God's grace has brought us gifts. Grace literally is the word for gifts. So even the gifts that we have are an expression of God's grace in us and through us towards one another. Paul would remind the church in Corinth as they sh- that the Macedonian church, which showed incredible generosity, flowed out of the grace of God that had been given. So even our generosity with one another is an expression. What Paul wants to continue to draw from is that foundation for how we live as a community together is ultimately rooted and built on the grace of God shown towards us. It's his chesed that causes us to show gracious love in our community. And what I've been thankful for and continue to be thankful for is that you guys have continued to be that sort of community. I do not take lightly the season that you walked through. But what I have seen and been amazed by is the work of our God to continue to form us into a community of grace. This week I was talking to Evelyn in the office, and she was telling me uh, how recently there was a, a guy who came to our building who visited from one of our other campuses. He was helping out with something in our building, and um, Evelyn was talking to him, and uh, she had offered him snacks, because we have snacks in our office. Like, we like snacks, right? So she was like, hey, we got snacks. Take some snacks. Great. And as he was going to leave for the day, she just said to him, hey, just remember, we're always the campus where you can get snacks. And she said he turned back and looked at her and said, yeah, and grace. That's what you show. People already notice and say, man, what would different about them that they would respond like that? See, a community of grace shows grace. And you've done that. And I've been so thankful for it time and again. And what it glorifies more than anything is the grace and faithfulness and chesed of our God. Because he always gives us, out of his gracious love, the ability to rebuild and the ability to move forward. I'll close with this. 
on the very first Sunday of my sabbatical, I went to another church. And I certainly was in a place of devastation. And I listened that Sunday to the pastor as he talked about the reality of the grace of God as he expounded upon Romans 5. And towards the end of his sermon, he used an illustration that felt like the Lord was speaking right to me. He talked about being in New York during 9-11 and seeing the attacks and devastation that came when the Twin Towers fell. And he talked that day about how the reality of our brokenness can bring these moments of devastation. I was like, really, God, this is what we're going to talk about this Sunday? I show up here? Thanks. Then he said, the gospel can rebuild what's been torn down. And I held on to that. Because despite my devastation, the gospel was still true. Jesus had still died and risen again. God was still a God of grace. His steadfast love hadn't stopped and his mercy hadn't come to an end. So last week, Alicia and I are on a plane flying into JFK in New York City. And we took a route that I hadn't taken into New York City before. But as we were flying in, we came down out of the clouds came kind of around lower Manhattan and then we banked up the river towards JFK. And it was in the afternoon so the sun was kind of shining across the city and I kind of looked out the window as we're kind of just slightly higher than the buildings of lower Manhattan. And kind of glistening in the reflection of the sun and standing tall and prominent among all the buildings was the Freedom Tower. Now, I hadn't witnessed or seen the Freedom Tower since it had been finalized and constructed. And it was an impressive building. It kind of stands out among all the skyscrapers of New York. And it stands as a monument and a pillar to the culture and the values of our nation and the resiliency of our people in light of what happened on those attacks. But I couldn't help but think as I reflected back the word that I had heard almost 10 weeks before. And I saw that building, I was reminded, what makes that building magnificent, what draws your eye towards it, what makes it stand out different than everything else, is it's a building that was built out of devastation. And now it's a monument to something greater and stronger and more. Friends, there's no hiding that we've all faced moments of devastation. But grace gives us the ability to rebuild. And as we rebuild, we become a monument to something greater and bigger and more than we ever could be. testimony to a God of grace. And that's the journey that we're in. Listen, I'm not standing here as like a finished product. 
We're not standing here like, all right, made it, back to normal. No. We're in a journey of rebuilding. God has been gracious to this point with us. He has been gracious to this point with you. And I anticipate and know, I don't anticipate, I know he will continue to be gracious as we continue to journey forward. You know why? Because the steadfast love of the Lord doesn't stop and his mercies never end. So let's let him continue to work through us to make much of his name and the glory of his